Hello, welcome to Tea Hanks for the Memories. I'm your host, Darren. We are back to talk about The Burbs. Um, it was released on the 17th of February, 1989, and one might call it a box office disappointment. It did roughly two and a half times its budget. It basically broke even. Um, not, not the first time that Tom has had a, a disappointment at the box office. Um, but, you know, probably one of the more notable ones. I think it, that helped with its uh, cult status, but, you know, we could talk about that more with my guests once we get into it. Tom is getting top billing, and on the on the title cards, he gets his own single card before everybody else gets, uh, gets any billing. So um, he is the star of this film. He's on the poster prominently, being electrocuted or electrocuting someone. I don't know what's going on in that poster. And joining me to talk about today, I have on two. Hello, on two. Uh, hey, Darren, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, we have... Uh, returning from many podcasts now, Andy Nelson. Hello, Andy. Hi, glad to be back. And we have debuting um, what I'm going to call our Burbs expert, and that is the the co-host of the Burbs Minute by Minute podcast, and that is Jeff Ferry. Hello, Jeff. Oh, it's great to be back at Mayfield Place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was just going to say to you guys, I mean, for me, the first time I think I saw this was on TV. I didn't. I definitely didn't see it at the cinema. We weren't really a cinema-going family in the 80s. Um, and so, you know, I don't even think we really rented this. We rented the hell out of Big, um, <laughs> you know, and this film came out just as Tom was nominated for an Oscar for Big, uh, which you would have expected would have helped with the box office a little bit. But, you know, February is a bit of a bit of a month where they just dump films so it didn't do that okay so i think i saw it on tv and i've seen it on tv a couple of times since um and then obviously i basically finished watching it about an hour ago before we recorded for this so yeah i saw it like uh when i was a kid like years ago and uh just once the whole way through and just something i would catch on tv uh just in bits uh over the years but uh this was really my second time watching it for the podcast so it was i was really surprised about how much i remembered and stayed in my mind i know you're probably i mean it's funny because i'm hosting this podcast but you are definitely probably the biggest i would say at least <laughs> 80s tom hanks fan uh, in terms you know, of i don't know your preference but certainly the 80s you have definitely been the expert on on his films well we've only talked about the 80s so far uh, yeah. it'll be it'll be fun to kind of go beyond uh yeah because I, I i am a big tom hanks fan i i, I <laughs> was already a tom hanks fan at the point when this came out um and so i saw this in the theaters um I've, I've always been a big fan of it i i think you know i think after this i actually started also becoming a big joe dante fan and so the, it just kind of like you know perfect perfect crossing uh of everything at this particular point uh, and I, I just also, um, you know, I, I'm such a fan that of this particular film. I worked on a, a film with uh, Courtney Gaines 10 years ago, um, a Western, and I actually had him autograph for me. I'll show all of you here. It is a picture of a, a woman on a frame, and it says, Andy, it came with the frame, Courtney Gaines. <laughs> So, one of my prized possessions. Uh, I'm a big fan of this movie. And Jeff, you did it minute by minute. So, do you remember the first time you saw it? Not in minute pieces, let's say. Oh, de- I mean, definitely didn't see it in the theater because at this time we were mostly just renting movies and stealing them from the uh, the local place. You know, you could take them and re-record them, <laughs> and that's how we made our extensive VHS collection. And this was definitely in there. Uh, I've seen this. I- I'm not exaggerating. I've seen this movie over a hundred times. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, it's awesome. And, and sometimes end to end, sometimes in bits and pieces. Like, I I had one of Rick Dukeman's, uh, the guy that plays Art, I had one of his specials from HBO that I saw also like 20 times. He was he was actually a really good stand-up comedian. 
But yeah, yeah, I've seen this. I've seen this a lot. <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's get into the plot then. Um, and because this is a Joe Dante film, and he has to be a little bit extra. Um, and I should say, uh, Gremlins Two was one of the first films I saw by myself in the cinema. Not by myself, but you know, without my parents. Um, <laughs> so you know, I'm a fan, a fan of Joe Dante myself. I think, in fact, I think I saw uh, Gremlins Two and Back to the Future Three the same summer with uh, with a friend of mine. Um, uh, so that was, you know, that was a pretty good summer. Mm. Um, we start with the Universal logo, and then we pan down to America. And the Universal logo turns into the suburbs as we arrive um, at Mayfield Place. Um, and, you know, uh, we'll get at the end of the film, it zooms back out. <laughs> and because I, 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 it's, it's a weird thing because Joe Dante, you know, he kind of loves doing this kind of thing of like kind of messing with the format a little bit and breaking the fourth wall and stuff. And so kind of turning the logo into, into the opening, which I think, you know, a lot of filmmakers will do these days. They'll have you know, the, the logo being incorporated into the opening of the film. Mm. Um, these days, it's it's easy to do because everything's digital. Uh, but, you know, this seems like a bit of an effort to kind of get the, the Universal logo to be part of, um, you know, the opening of the film. Uh, um, do you know and, uh, if it's the first occurrence of the Universal logo being uh, changed for a movie? I don't know. I, I, I'm not even sure how I would find that out. Um, I do know that, that like, when... <laughs> The op- the opening of Waterworld has the Universal logo and then the planet yeah, the becomes water covered in water. In. Yeah, but that's the only other time I can think of the Universal logo being messed about in this, like to be incorporated in this way. Um, Scott Pilgrim's got like the eight bit version of the the Universal logo, haven't mm. they? So um, I'm sure some of the Jurassic Park films mess with the logo a little bit as well. Um, but I can't I can't say I recall any films previous to this doing this with the logo for universal um but yeah and we see tom he is wearing his trademark from the poster uh dress dressing gown and boxes and you know expect to see a lot of people wearing dressing gowns in this film and the and kind of clothing of that type um as he hears some noises from his neighbor's basement uh, he goes to kind of walk over to there and then the wind kind of like pushes him back um, and that kind of establishes the tone of the film, which is this kind of. Um, I, it's weird because I, there's no there's no real like supernatural element to this, but there is always the kind of implication. Um, you know, later on there'll be like a lightning strike that just kind of comes out of nowhere, <laughs> um, and so there's there's, there's this kind of uh, tone that's set uh, along with the music as well. I should say, you know, it's it's uh, it's some great music from uh, Jerry Goldsmith, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm. Yep. Um, and it, and it really kind of like sets the tone. Um, it's not quite. I mean, I mean, if anybody knows like the opening of like Gremlins with the kind of the la 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 music, that kind of thing, it's not. It's not like that, but it kind of is sort of like that a little bit. So obviously, Joe Dante has a preference for how he likes his music in his film. And, and he definitely likes he definitely likes Jerry Goldsmith because they've uh, worked together quite a number of times, which uh, I thought worked in their favor here as well. We'll, we'll talk more about it, but uh, you know, the way that he integrates some other themes and stuff. We made, we brought up the same thing about the supernatural thing. It's one of the first of many red herrings that you get through this. <laughs> He'll just throw stuff out there like, Hey, maybe it's supernatural. Hey, maybe it's devil worshipers. 
hey, maybe all the neighbors are crazy. Like, there's so many things on the table. By the time that the plot finally unveils itself, you you really don't know what's going on. Like, you're completely lost at that point. The first time you're watching it, like, what is going on? Is is there is 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 there even something going on, <laughs> or is, are these guys all crazy? <laughs> Yeah, um, and I like how the next morning when the paperboy comes around, it kind of establishes, I mean, first of all, we get that, you know, something that I think Joe Dante does really well, which is, you know, he kind of pans down past the sign to tell us it's Mayfield Place without having anybody say it. Like, you know, he's he's very mm-hmm. good at kind of establishing stuff without having to, um, you know, go into kind of clunky exposition. And the paperboy just kind of going around the houses and establishing where each of the houses are and the interactions between the neighbours and kind of you know, how how they will be for the rest of the film. I mean, you know, he really establishes each of the characters. We've, you know, we've obviously already met Tom because he he's the star of the show and he plays Ray. Um, and then we also get, uh, you know, Walter, who has the world's most conspicuous, uh, I believe in Cockney rhyming they say syrup. Um, and, like, I mean, it, I, again, it's like one of those things where, like, that wig is obviously going to play a part in the plot. And that is why it is so obvious when it's on Walter's head. But I like that it's like, it's deliberately, like, it's, it's what's weird about it is it's like, it's not a subtle wig, but that's the point. It's, it's a subtle way of introducing it into the plot is by having it be the most obvious wig in the world. Um, you know, and then, you know, we also meet uh, Mark Rumsfeld. I keep wanting to say Rumsfeld, obviously, uh, because of, you know, uh, that person. I'm sure we'll uh, yep. talk about <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so and so, but he's he's like you know, um, it's it's really weird because you know obviously he's a Vietnam vet. I, you know, throughout the film he will kind of talk about uh, stuff that he did in Vietnam. But he's an extremely put together Vietnam vet. Like he's not got PTSD <laughs> yes. or anything. No, he owns his own home. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he's, he's a, like he's high functioning uh, as a vet. <laughs> you know, he's he's got a trophy wife. Uh, he's living the dream, really. Yeah, and it's and it's it's like one of those things where it's like one like it's it's the exact opposite of like I mean obviously the eighties were you know the era of the kind of Vietnam film, um, you know obviously climaxing with something like Born on the Fourth of July, which I think came out the same year as this film, and that's all about veterans being mistreated and everyone you know spitting on them or whatever you know the kind of the myths are about it, um, and he's just really like he's really well put together and he's with uh, Wendy Charles, who I mean is. I mean, not even just out of his league. They're not even playing the same game. She is like um, these days better better known as the voice of. Um, I'm trying to remember the character on American Dad. Uh, she Francine uh, Smith. Francine, yeah, yep. yeah. That's so. That's what she's better known as. Um, but she is just like so, like kind of insanely hot in this. And the, and that's obviously that's also a plot point that you know there are <laughs> there are characters who will kind of remark on it but yeah she's like introduced as kind of like the loyal wife they kind of like put the he's got like a, a flagpole that's got like a little motor on so he can put the flag up um and it's just you know he kind of salutes the flag but then steps in um uh, some dog feces which have been left there by walter's uh, little yappy dog and I, I i just like the kind of the, the kind of the way that each of the characters are very clearly established mm just within this little opening montage as the paperboy just throws kind of papers at people and around people. Um, and then as he leaves, we kind of see the conflict. And I think kind of Corey Feldman, who got the and credit in the in the opening credits, so, you know, um, who obviously had worked with Joe Dante in um, Gremlins, he is, I, I mean, I don't know if he, does he own that house? Does he live at that house? Where are his parents? He just <laughs> There's a lot of questions, questions about what's going on <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> 
Yeah, so he puts these paint cans down and he spills a bunch of paint. And I'm not a fan of people making a mess in films. And I'm like, oh my God, let's just put the lid on. Just, I'm, anyway. It's just a nice small detail of like a reckless teenager. Is he a teenager? <laughs> he's, um, I think he is a teenager. Like, because he's, I assume he? his parents I, are away or whatever, but. Yeah, it's, but he's, he's Ricky and he's, he, you know, he's going to spend the entire, I mean, this film only lasts, you know, it spans one week and he's basically painting this house, um, doing a very bad job about it. But he's, you know, playing. Uh, you know, loud music and kind of just, you know, he's got a, he's got a mullet and he's just rocking out. And he's, he, he like sees the street as something like as entertainment, basically. Um, and it's, it's kind of weird because that's like, a, it's just, again, Joe Dante likes to do this type of thing. It's basically like a commentary on the film existing is the fact that Ricky views it as a film. <laughs> he's like, he's like, this is really entertaining. Like, you know, this is fun. And to watch these, these guys go from house to house and have arguments and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's like um, our audience surrogate. Like he's he's us. Yeah. We're there on the neighborhood, and he, we're watching the whole thing unfold yeah. through his eyes. Yeah, he can like be yeah. the Greek, he can be both the Greek chorus and occasionally step in and interact. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, he will he will kind of direct some of the guys to do stuff occasionally. I think mostly for his own entertainment, like just to see where it goes. Um, but yeah, like I mean, I, I should say you know obviously. Uh, the Corys in the 80s were huge and you know I obviously I'd seen Corey Feldman I think in Goonies before this I'd seen him in Gremlins um, you know he has I think I think some people underestimate like you know some child actors like having like you know their own kind of distinct personality and Corey Feldman was always um, you know kind of very entertaining and you know he I, I mean he was a good actor as a kid you know and and I think in this film he really kind of it's different to like some of the other stuff he's done. You know, he really is kind of inhabiting this Ricky who just, you know, wants to watch the neighborhood and just kind of have fun and, you know, occasionally paint something, um, you know, and I, I kind of like that. Um, and uh, apparently this was a sticking point. I'm sure you'll be able to tell me, Jeff, um, uh, you know, Tom being a dad, like, you know, he's married to Carol, played by Carrie Fisher, reunited from uh, Man With One Red Shoe. Um, there they were playing lovers here they are playing a married couple and they have a kid and this is the first time that Tom Hanks is playing a dad on screen I mean these days you know he's 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 America's dad he's the world's dad uh, but this is the first time where he's actually playing that role and apparently he fought hard to try and get this kid written out of the script <laughs> so he wasn't a dad uh, and I find that to be quite funny that like you know, he was kind of acknowledging that if he plays a dad on screen, then the next role he plays, you know, is like a kind of, you know, a playboy, as he had done in Nothing in Common. It's a little harder for him to kind of go back to those types of roles, um, you know, after playing a dad. Um, so I just thought that was interesting. I mean, Jeff, I'm, like sure, the, I'm sure you kind of... It's like the old Hollywood thing where people wouldn't be parents in movies till they were like 50. And it's like, yeah, that's not how the world really works. I mean, he's like, what is he? I can't even remember. I haven't looked at it in a while. He's like, probably about 33 about yeah, this point. I think he might have been even a little yeah. older. He might be like 36 in this. But, like, you're plenty old enough to have a kid that's like 11, 12 years old, 13 maybe. <laughs> like, right. I mean, like, listen. Yeah. And he may not have gotten the kid written out, but he pretty much got the kid written out. <laughs> yeah. The kid's got like. He's got like one good scene, I would say, and the rest of the time he's basically furniture. Yeah, and then I mean, I think at the end when Carol returns, the kid isn't with her. Um, that I can remember. He, I think he seems. I, to I think he's disappear. there, but I think he's just furniture. Yeah. Oh right, yeah. Well, that's it. That's how unmemorable that, that role was for that particular child. I uh, um, having rewatched this, I was I was kind of surprised that he had a kid at this point because, like, he you know, he's still pretty young. 
I mean, the previous year, he was only 13. How can he have a kid now? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it was obviously something apparently that he had some issues with in the script. And like you say, Jeff, basically the role is kind of written down to nothing. There's like one scene where the kid is kind of um, there. But we find out, you know, as we get the, the kind of the establishment of the various characters in the street, that he's basically off work. Uh, I'm guessing because of some kind of stressful situation. I don't know that they really get into the ins and outs of it. But they're like, he's off work. Um, you know, he's got to get refreshed so he can go back to work and, you know, be better. And that is something that will kind of come up, uh, you know, throughout the film. And, you know, he's obviously suspicious of his neighbours. And that is kind of, obviously, that's going to be the germ of the film. Um, you know, they may as well have called this, um, you know, three neighbours poke around. Because that's pretty much what the whole <laughs> film is going to be. Like, every kind of ten minutes, they're going to find a reason to kind of start poking around at the at the the, the next door neighbours. Uh, which are the, the Clopex. Um, and, you know, at this point, uh, Ricky mentions that, you know, Mrs. Rumsfield hasn't got any tan lines and he compliments her on that. <laughs> and uh, I was like, OK, I mean, you know, um, I guess it's worth mentioning. I guess, you know, in the, in the 80s, tan lines were a thing that people worried about. Um, you know, and we find out that Ray is he's talking. Is this where Art enters? He enters kind of just before this, I think. Because obviously, you yeah, know, Ray's he, showing he him the tools. Around. He comes in during breakfast, <laughs> hunting the crow. Yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, played by uh, Rick DeComen, and uh, you know, I gotta say, I don't think I'd seen him in many things. Um, I, I obviously I saw him in um, Gremlins too, um, but um, you know, I think other than like Spaceballs and Die Hard, where he's had like small roles, I don't think I'd really, Groundhog I'd really kind of. Oh, Groundhog Day, yeah. Yep, that's a. Oh that's yeah, 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 yeah. He's in the uh, the original Better Scream. Role. Oh, not Scream. I'm sorry, Scary Movie. Not okay. Scream. Scary Movie. <laughs> Wait, uh, but I mean, I you know, those are all kind of like smallish roles. Oh, this, this is, is his you know, biggest this, role by far. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is him like kind of taking like fifth. I mean, I think he got like third or fourth billing. Um, yeah. And when his name came up, I was like, "Who is that fella?" Um, and you know, he plays the kind of like uh, archetypical kind of like '80s slob husband. Um, his wife is away. Uh, her return towards the end of the film will kind of alarm him a little bit. Uh, but like you, like you say, Jeff, he you know he was previously a stand-up comic. Uh, he's Canadian, or he was Canadian, should I say, because he died in 2015, mm. uh, he'd, and he'd kind of been retired since uh, 2004. Was like the last time he acted in anything. Um, you know, so at the age of 62, which is you know that's that's a fairly young age. Um, yeah. As we record this, Tom turned 65 yesterday, so. You know, um, but yeah, you know, I think he's like he's really good as a counterpoint to kind of like Tom because, you know, obviously Tom, um, you know, effortlessly charming and Mm. obviously kind of playing the kind of grounded character in this film. And then Art just keeps encouraging Ray to do stuff. If you you don't have Art, Uh, none of this happens because Rumsfeld and Ray are never going to do anything. I mean, you know, obviously Ray was out in the middle of the night, you know, kind of looking at his next door neighbor. but. You know, he tried to cross, and then a bit of wind, and he was immediately pushed back, and he didn't bother, didn't bother going. Um, you know, so yeah, he, like his curiosity is kind of he's he's he he's curious, but he's not going to act on it until Art kind of encourages him. Um, and Ray is trying to basically rest. You know, he's trying to he's talking. You know, he's talking about the the tools that his um, his um, father in law got him. He's looking to install you know an automatic garage door mm. opener. You know, the the height of um, uh, the height of luxury in the eighties. You know, he's just looking to kind of tinker about and just kind of keep to himself, you know, for a couple of weeks so he can go back to work uh, refreshed. 
uh, and obviously art starts pushing his buttons and stuff. I mean, we have the son of the Clopex comes out kind of just onto the uh, the deck at the front and just kind of stands there for a little bit um, before going back in and kind of doing nothing. Um, and obviously everybody in the neighborhood kind of stares <laughs> while he's on the on the deck. And then, you know, the, the, there's this kind of weird... Um, this weird thing where like Ray and and Art kind of get into an argument about going to the door, and and this kind of like in this film this will happen like every kind of ten minutes they will argue about something and um, you know Art will kind of encourage Ray to do something and Ray won't want to do it, um, and like we said this is where we kind of get I mean the kind of the supernatural element kind of gets hinted at here. As they go to knock on the door and the number for 669, one of the numbers turns around and it turns into 666. And then the little sign falls off and a bunch of bees fly out. Um, and this is when we get our trademark Hanks yelling um, as he's been attacked by bees. And he runs to the Rumsfelds who spray him with water and they spray art with water. And then they're just rolling around on the floor. <laughs> and I, was like... I mean, it's a lot of fun. You know, I think that's uh, like Jeff said without art kind of uh, egging Ray on to do these sorts of things, it, you know, we're not going to have a film. And I mean, he is the sort of neighbor who does that. And I think that's, that's kind of the essence of the whole idea of the burbs anyway, is that, that these people take these, these little things like the guy coming out onto the porch and creepily looking around while he scratches his beard and, and, and <laughs> these things as, 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 you know much bigger than they really are and and like even just ray out at late at night and seeing the lights in the basement it's like that's the sort of thing that you know when you're living in the suburbs yeah you start paying attention to these sorts of things like why did they do that you know and i mean even we find ourselves doing that with our neighbors and it's just silly it's like why are we worrying about these things but i, I think that's what the film does so well and that's why i think these actors are working so well at kind of doing this is because they're allowing you know allowing us to kind of start getting as suspicious as they are and and you know when yeah i mean obviously the whole 666 and the bees and all that sort of thing is is in there just to kind of heighten everything up a little bit more but it's already kind of like we're amped up with these guys as they're going in to kind of explore the super creepy house so i, I think it works really well in setting things up uh yeah i i really like uh it kind of reminds me of um you know, no, I, I sort of see like art as like this uh, <laughs> a toxic ma a dude who's into like toxic masculinity. He's like calling uh, Tom Hanks a chicken and trying to one up him and uh, encourage him to yeah knock on the door and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, and then late later, I think it's I think it's a, is it later in the same day um, where Ray goes out to walk dog and he ends up going over to Art's house. Um, to smoke a cigar, um, I think a habit obviously he's picked up from uh, nothing in common, um, and then they they start like with Ricky they start doing this thing where he starts talking about green sky at night and they keep like coming up with different like they keep saying different things and like none of it makes any sense. I, mean, I guess it's meant to be a play on you know red sky at night, shepherd's delight, but like they just keep they keep like coming up with different things. Um, you Wait, know, just to uh, kind of what's what's Red Sky at Night, Shepherd's Delight? It means it's going to be it's it's going to be I don't know it's just something that people say. I heard it's Sailor's heard. Delight is what I heard. Oh, see over here it's Shepherd's Delight because we got a lot of shepherds. I would assume the same would be true in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then Red Sky of Morning, Shepherd's Warning. 
I don't know what they're warning us about, but that's just a saying. But they keep saying green sky at night and then keep saying stuff. And I'm like going on about like neighbors away and stuff. And I'm like, what? what is this going on about? Um, and obviously, I think this, this is where Art decides to tell a story about the person who uh, like the I can't remember the guy's name, but he's like, skip, you know, the ice cream skip. Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and he tells this very long story about how, you know, people like his house had this weird smell and people didn't want to say your house smells. <laughs> and then eventually it turns out he's murdered his family. And, you know, that was their rotting corpses that everyone was smelling. Um, but it's a perfect, I, it's a perfect Joe Dante moment where just for a minute, yeah. the movie starts to roll from a comedy. It's like a gremlins moment where suddenly he starts getting real serious. Like he's like, uh, Ricky tries to laugh it off and he's like, you think that's funny? And he's like, <laughs> right, that was his right. family in there. They were dead. Once again, in a Joe Dante movie, we got a whole dead family on our hands. <laughs> that he just yeah. casually throws out there in somebody's reminiscence. Uh, yeah, you could say yeah. it's similar to the uh, the Santa chimney monologue that Phoebe Cates gives. Right, in Gremlins. Yeah. yeah. Which apparently they just threw in there like as a gag because they thought the studio would cut it and then the studio kept it. So it was like, <laughs> okay, joke's on us. Um, yeah, and then this is, this is when, you know, Art and Mark and Ray, they start to do a bit of light snooping. Um, you know, and then they hear this kind of like transformer noise kind of comes on, like <laughs> as if somebody's turned on these transformers, and then out of nowhere, uh, some lightning strikes a lightning rod, um, and then there's a bunch of lights in the basement that kind of light up. Um, you know, it rains after, but not. I mean, it's really weird because it rains after the, the lightning strike, not before it. So I don't know what happened there, but obviously this is classic Joe Dante. Um, you know, the whole house is kind of lit up. I should say as well. All of oh, this entire street is a back lot um, mm. that they built like from scratch. Uh, later on, it became the it became Wisteria Lane on Desperate Housewives, uh, and it's been used many different times in many different films. I was going to say you've um, already you've already been there once. Yeah, um, <laughs> which in which film? It was a uh, Dragnet. Dragnet, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh Con- uh, Connie Swain. Uh, oh, yes, it's Virgin the Connie Swain's Wales house. Wales house, yeah. Dragnet that I have definitely already recorded. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I remember it well from watching Dragnet. I I Um, thought this was going to be a story of Darren actually visiting the set at Universal. (laughs) Oh, no, this this set's been there forever. They they had the monsters there. Like, you can still go to this and see Colonial Street, I think is what they call it. And it's this, I mean, they swap out the houses and only some of them are real houses. Some of them are just facades. But. Well, I think they were using it, like right around this time for I was was it like the Leave It to Beaver, oh, like remake? the remake, like, yeah, it was like yeah, the remake the, or whatever yeah. it was called, the new one that yeah. I'm sure was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was. What was that called? There's always Beaver, There's still Beaver. <laughs> I think it was just like I think it was just like the new Leave It to Beaver show. Like I think it was that bland of a wow. title. I think <laughs> it was called Beaver, Beaver Got Bills. What it's called. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would love this if somebody like like made a dark version of like Leave It to Beaver and just called it Beaver. Um, just <laughs> just called it of... Beaver. Like it yeah, makes just... you sound like a hard edged detective. Yeah, Beaver's <laughs> yeah. on the beat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we get all the kind of the the the, the lights and everything on the one house. Uh, you know the, the and then uh, you know again we get the kind of the hint of kind of something being wrong as this car drives out and just stops at the end of the driveway and Hans gets out, puts some rubbish into a bin and then kind of forces it down into the bin. 
Um, which kind of forces it as a gentle way of describing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, what, what's funny is like, uh, I mean, I don't know about you fellas, but in this country, if your bin is not fully closed, uh, the bin men will not take it. Um, oh, so really? I understand uh, him pushing. <laughs> well, this is it. So I understand, like to me, pushing the rubbish down into the bin so you can put the lid on properly um, is just so that <laughs> the bin men can pick it up. It's like, OK, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, but obviously, you know, the, the fellas think that something is up um, and, you know, it starts to rain and, uh, you know, they decide that in the morning they're going to inspect bin. They're going to find out what was put in there because it was a large bag that was put in. Um, they also say that it's odd that somebody would drive to the end of their driveway and take bins out of the out of the back of their car and put them into the, you know, some bin bags into the bin, uh, which, you know, that is a little bit odd. But at the same time, you know, you start to get the impression that these guys are kind of speculating about stuff. And, you know, uh, it is going to kind of end up um, kind of going against them at some point. Um, and when Ray gets home, he sees that the Klopeks are in the back garden digging a bunch of holes, <laughs> which obviously <laughs> in the rain is extremely suspicious. Uh, but I do kind of, I, I mean, the one thing that I do really enjoy about Joe Dante's direction is how he kind of, each time he kind of raises the stakes just a little bit, you know, like the house having all these lights and the lightning strike and then the rain and then, and then gradually like it's just, you know, little tiny actions that are shot in a way that make it more, um, you know, I guess like without the music playing underneath, it wouldn't be as suspicious, you know, <laughs> but, but, well, that's, you know, I mean, really kind of sells it. Yeah. I mean, he uses the Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, the two of them just work together so well and, and all the stuff like when the car is backing down the driveway just to put the trash in it and the music, like it, yeah. it's just got so much going on in that moment, you know, all the way through with Hans taking that stick and just whacking the hell out of the trash and everything i mean it's just it, it i i think the music is what really makes it and i think it gives joe dante's movies kind of that manic energy that i think that he loves so much and and we didn't even talk about it but when we we're talking about rumsfield how he actually uses uh, jerry goldsmith uses some echoes of his own score for Patton as part of the theme for him which just adds to his militaristic sense which I, I think is just so fun so yeah all of this stuff i think when when you listen to jerry goldsmith's music with it i mean that really just makes the film uh what it is i think yeah um and then the next morning uh which i'm i'm calculating as being i think wednesday of this particular week uh, the mania goes to a, the next level when uh, the garbage men arrive to take the garbage out. And they are played by Dick Miller um, from, of course, uh, Gremlins and Gremlins 2. From from everything, let's just say, from everything <laughs> well, yeah. that <laughs> I mean, Joe Dante's I, done. Every movie yeah. where they needed a New York tough guy. <laughs> he, he, is like, yeah. he is Joe Dante's regular. I love it. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's where I recognized him from, was from Gremlins and Gremlins 2, because I'd seen them before this. Um, he plays Vic, the garbage man, and he's accompanied by Robert Picardo, who was also in Gremlins 2, um, playing Joe. <laughs> um, and I, I like the kind I mean, Robert Picardo, you know, obviously I, I you know, knew him best from uh, Star Trek Voyager, where he played the Doctor. Um, and I, 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 it's funny because in this, he's got a completely different energy. Like the character he plays in Gremlins 2, uh, who, of course, marries uh, Greta the Gremlin at the end. Um so, uh, you know, like that character and I think the Doctor are kind of roughly the same wavelength of being this kind of like, you know, sciencey person. 
Um, but the guy he's playing here is like just like a new agey like garbage man, and it's just such a <laughs> it's such a like completely different energy to like his other roles. Um, have, and have I you like ever how... seen by chance Inner Space. Love that. Uh, yeah. Yes, I haven't seen it in a while. Uh, <laughs> more, probably more been Joe a couple Dante, of decades. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's definitely a uh, if you want a third level of what you can see with Robert Picardo, <laughs> that's definitely a good one. And and about half the cast of the Burbs is in it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I like this. Essentially, this is just like an extended cameo for these two. Um, as um, Vic just wants to pick up the garbage and go about his day because that's his job. Whereas Joe is spending a lot of time con- trying to convince Vic to go to some seminar where they're talking about the healing power of crystals and whatever. <laughs> um, and they get interrupted by, is it Art that runs out first and starts going hey, through garbage? Yes, Garby. Art is. Yep. Oh, yeah. God, we went into that so much. I've never heard in my entire life anybody refer to a garbage man as a Garby. <laughs> we had like an entire episode called Garbies with us trying to figure out what was going on. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so he starts trying to go through the bins of the Clopex, and um, I think they've probably already been either the Clopex have taken the stuff out of the bin or uh, the bins have already been put into the, the garbage <laughs> truck. So that there's nothing for them to find. And they just he just starts pouring out stuff on the floor. And I like that you know Dick Miller is obviously very angry about this because you know they they're trying to just collect the garbage and go on um but robert picardo starts assisting by pouring out another bag <laughs> and then talking about how you know once the trash is on the on the the you know the pavement there's no expectation of privacy and and i just i just love how he's like they're, they're both kind of in complete opposite directions about what's going on here um fun, fun fact he is legally correct yes. if you're trash right. is on the he curb, is yes it is everybody's stuff we had a a pi wow. going through somebody's trash on my street not two weeks ago Really? Yeah. Yep. And that is that's something that I mean I know that it's definitely correct because it's something that they call back to in the wire. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They're trying to. They can't. They can't get like a you know a court order for something. So they're just like, well, wait for them to throw stuff out and then just go through the garbage, and that's that's fair game. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they start just basically pour. I mean, uh, is Ray Ray comes out next, or I think Mark comes out. They both end that's, up coming out. Yeah, Rumsfeld yeah. comes out Rumsfeld, and yeah. yeah, and they and they start. <laughs> They throw in trash all over the place. (laughs) Uh, I gotta say, this whole entire sequence made me so uncomfortable and upset because, like, not only is art like coming out and yelling at civil servants or just people, like public health workers, and and then they get into the the garbage truck and they're like, (laughs) their whole body is in it, and I just, I couldn't help but like picture like Dick Miller like turning the machine on and crushing and killing them (laughs) too. Based on some of his movies, could happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So they start. They start throwing it all about on the street, and you know, as I said, Joe is helping. Vic is not happy with this, um, and I think they reach a point where they're like, "Who's going to pick all this up?" And Art's like, "You." And they're like, "No, no, no. We pick it up from the cans, not from the street." And it's like they're just making a huge mess. Um, this leads to Ray and Carol arguing because obviously she is not happy with you know, what's going on? <laughs> like, the kind of obsession that he has for the next-door neighbours, uh, she feels is a little unhealthy. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, for me, there's not enough Carrie Fisher in this film. <laughs> she she kind of, I don't know, like, I mean, obviously, you know, she disappears later on in the film, you know, for the purposes of the plot, but, you know, they keep, uh, you know, Ray and Carol just kind of keep having arguments. There is a nice scene in a little bit, um, I say in a little bit, probably about 20 minutes time, when... You know, they do kind of utilize her and um, Wendy Schaal. 
Uh, but for a lot of this film, it feels like Ray is trying to kind of get Carol out of the way so we can, you can talk with, um, you know, with Mark and Art about stuff. Um, and, you know, after they finished arguing, uh, which does feature again some trademark Tom Hanks yelling, which I, you know, always <laughs> enjoy. Um, you know, he tells them about the digging in the night. Um, and then this is when we discover that Walter is missing. Um, you know, his dog is just kind of wandering about. Um, and this is, I mean, they, as a kind of group, uh, along with uh, Mrs. Rumsfeld, they decide that they're going to get in, they're going to kind of break into Walter's house. Um, and I do like the moment when, you know, they're trying to find like a key or something and raise at the front door and then suddenly the door opens and they're like, how did you get in? And Mark has got, got like a suction cup on a piece of glass. And it's like, like, does he have like a diamond cutter? Like to just go and cut pieces of glass? And, yeah. It's and, not even uh, broken. It's a perfectly cut piece of glass. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. It was like, but yeah, I do like him just suddenly opening the door and just being inside and not because he didn't discuss it with anyone. There was no planning or anything. He just kind of disappeared. And then seconds later, he's inside. Um, you know, and I just, I thought that was like a nice little reveal. Mm. Um, and I should say, of course, Bruce Dern is playing, uh, you know, the e- extremely even keeled veteran, um, you know, who, you know, unlike, unlike Rambo, he could, he could cope with Vietnam perfectly fine. <laughs> and he's having a nice life just living in suburbia. Um, well, I, I think we should say there's a, there's a hint of mania in there. <laughs> I <think> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, mania, but not PTSD. On. That's 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 the normal thing, isn't it? For like you know, eighties Vietnam veterans is they're you know they're they're more like Rambo than than anything else. You know, kind I think of. I think like his problem is he misses veterans. it. Yeah, yeah, like I don't think the yeah. war never ended for him. <laughs> uh, yeah, which I think works nice as a character detail of him being kind of stuck in the suburbs and still looking for action. When they're right. when they're in the house, one of my favorite like throwaway gags is in there where Art just picks up something and puts it in his pocket to steal it. And Ray's just like, you want to not put that in the pot, your pocket? You want to not steal that from Walter's house? <laughs> it's like, uh, it, yeah. it's totally inconsequential to the plot, but it perfectly sums up both those guys. Like, totally. Art is just, he doesn't care. He's just going to take stuff. And Ray is still trying to be the good guy of like, come on, man, you can't steal from your, your supposedly dead neighbor's house. Yeah. Uh, I should say as well at this point, because that that kind of moment, I think, speaks to the shooting process for this, which uh, there was a writer's strike in late 88, which affected the shooting of this film. It was meant to be a Christmas film. um, And then it kind of got bumped back. Um, And basically, you know, for large portions of this script, there's just a lot of improv. Um, Mm. And they just like they had most of the script, but they couldn't do rewrites. So they just had to improvise any kind of new lines. And there's a lot of stuff from like uh, Tom Hanks, stuff like that, you know, where he's he's like, don't steal. Uh, but he says it in that kind of kind of odd way um, is kind of like improv from from Tom Hanks, which um, apparently Joe Dante actually really liked. You know, he's said yeah. how much he actually really felt that Tom Hanks's improv was um, really i don't know just it it felt very natural and uh, completely which i think makes sense uh, knowing you know kind of what we've seen from hanks before and yeah. after so i mean especially coming straight off punchline where he was as i discussed <laughs> in that episode when his character wasn't doing stand-up he's really funny and just very quick mm. um and i'm i've got to believe some of that kind of carried over here where his character is always kind of doing little comebacks um and making little asides like that 
Um, as with pretty much um, all Joe Dante films, the writer was on set, but they were hired as an actor. And Joe Dante apparently does this because then they can get residuals from the film instead mm. of just getting paid for being a writer. Um, so he kind of does it as a favor. So Dana Olson, who is the writer of this film, uh, appears later on as a cop. Um, and he was on set as an actor <laughs> like every single day. Yeah. So okay, they would kind of consult with him about the script, but they would kind of do it as, you know, hypotheticals and they wouldn't kind of directly discuss any lines or anything like that. They would just, they'd just be like, you know, speaking as a writer, how would you do this? Yeah. And he would kind of give them some ideas and then they would kind of have the guys kind of improvise some stuff around that. The same so, with Rick to common, obviously it's, you know, a comic who kind of was very quick himself. So, we should uh, also just say, oh, sorry, Dan no, Olson was in Splash. He was the uh, one of the men at the at the market arguing. I'll just let you know uh, when we hosted the Burbs Minute, just to let you know what kind of uh, research we did over there. My idiot co-host referred to Dan Olson as a female, and mm-hmm. I didn't correct him. And we did it for like three episodes, and then finally <laughs> a. Somebody wrote in and was like, hey, stupid, like it's a guy. And then – but he said it so ignorant Then I kept doing it. And I kept doing it for like another month. And then I just finally was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, it's a guy. We know that. I'm just doing it now to irritate one person that's listening because I'm that petty. Uh, yeah, so he, he – I mean he, he kind of – he you know, he started – I mean, he, you know, he was an actor and also like a producer and stuff. He's credited as a co-producer on this film. I th- again, I think that's just to get him some more money, um, you know, because Joe Dante was that kind of uh, director. I say that as if he's dead. He's alive. He's just not working very much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, also of interest, because of the writer's strike, there were literally only two films that were shooting on the Universal backlot during this time. Um, people kind of commented that it was like a ghost town because there was like hardly anybody there. And the other film was Flesh Lives. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is a, Remember that which, classic film. Which is, which you see, you say that, Jeff, but I like Fletch and Fletch Lives. <laughs> so, um, although Flesh Lives does have some kind of like, I don't know, I guess, I guess Fletch is very kind of like anti um, the Confederacy. <laughs> so, and that's a plus point for it. Um, <laughs> I haven't so, seen any Fletch, so I'm I'm just like working this out via context clues. I'm like, okay. I would say your enjoyment of Fletch is directly relevant to your enjoyment of Chevy Chase. Yeah, uh, no, was never a huge uh, Chevy Chase guy. So yeah, probably uh, not not for me. I mean, it's '80s Chevy Chase though. It's like yeah, it's 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 not it's like good a, kind of. It's not grumpy old Chevy Chase. <laughs> yeah, it's funny coked up Chevy Chase. <laughs> yeah, he's he's heavy on the patter in both of the Fletch films. He just li- literally people will be standing next to him and he just keep kind of making jokes and then okay. no one acknowledges it. His character just keeps he just keeps <laughs> rambling on like Popeye. Uh, um, is, but yeah, is John John Hamm playing Fletch in the reboot? Or, uh, all I know is he's in. The oh, I, d- I mean the re- the reboot thing has been going on for years. Oh, yeah. I've I'm been sure even about, Jeff could comment. I've been hearing because... about Fletch stuff since Kevin Smith was talking about it 15 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, yeah, right. uh, yeah. I remember Jason Lee was apparently going to be Fletch in Kevin Smith's uh, production of it. That was his choice, but uh, yeah, no, that that didn't happen. I'm sure at some point in the future Fletch will will happen again. Um, they keep announcing it, and then it just falls apart. Um, but yeah, so um, the question is, where were we in this particular film? Not Fletch. Um, and I think this is the point at which Art starts speculating about Satanism <laughs> and kind of talking about how they're Satanists 
And again, another kind of improvised line um, after they've hurried out of Walter's house, basically, because people keep breaking stuff from Ray's like, I don't know why you taught me into this. And he just kind of pushes everybody out of the out of the house. Well, and then he uh, writes the note. He writes the note to yeah. the to yes. Walter saying they got his dog. <laughs> yeah. he he, tra- he tries to do it in a kind of a simple way but then it gets it starts to get too long so he just kind of simplifies it to i've got your dog um which of course later on will come off as a little bit threatening um but yeah i i do like how we get some improvisation here of like you know satan is your friend and stuff it's the amount of times ever. that i've ever done that it's just like satan is good satan yeah. is pal <laughs> same yeah. here all the time uh, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I just, I kind of love that, like how, again, art is the one who's kind of pushing this theory. Um, and, you know, because you're watching a Joe Dante film, you know, previously, he's had gremlins coming out of nowhere. He's, he's, he's put a person into another person as a tiny person, you know, so like, the idea that something could be someone could be a Satanist is not it's not even really that far-fetched for a Joe Dante film, you know, and we've just seen like a lightning strike out of nowhere. So, um, you know, and then we get this kind of like extended nightmare with <laughs> where Ray kind of like imagines. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if any of you fellas want to kind of talk us through the nightmare because it's like so many kind of. Uh, again, this feels like kind of classic Joe Dante of him just really just having fun for no reason. There's just like this really extended long nightmare of of um, of Ray kind of imagining all these situations, um, uh- including like Walter. I think is it finished with Walter saying that they're like eating Walter or something. I can't remember the. I think it's them yelling to leave them alone or mind your own business. Mind your own business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, from the from the Clopex. Yeah, I think the dream is a bit of an amalgamation of the films he flicks through. Uh, One of them's the first one he watches is uh, a witch trial one. I I can't remember the name of it, but then he flicks over to uh, the Exorcist, I believe, and then he flips over to texas chainsaw 2 so and then when when we when we kind of because obviously he wakes up from the nightmare and then the next day he's like trying to relax and we can hear the strains of a beautiful day in the neighborhood uh which (laughs) how ironic at this point yeah (laughs) which i don't i i think it's funny because obviously like the whole the point of putting it in there again you know joe dante likes this kind of um uh, you know the kind of contrast of hearing, you know, "Won't you be my neighbor?" When obviously everybody in the street is basically trying to snoop and break into each other's houses, and it's literally, it's like literally not very neighborly what they're doing. Um, and then I do kind of like how when you know Art and Mark turn up, um, you know, they're obviously down on the ground, and you know the, the the shot is like down pointing towards them as though they're they are small children because they're basically asking Carol if. <laughs> Ray can come out to play, um, and then they kind of they they go to the Clopex and they like r- like ring the bell and then run away <laughs> and they spray. We know what you did, and it's like it's like so like they're kind of like super childish, um, and I like that Carol is like just leave him alone. Like he's tra- he's trying to rest. Like stop hassling Ray and just let him like lie in the sun and do nothing and just kind of have a you know um, a holiday, um, you know just from the stress um and of course as he is doing that and lying in the sun then the dog you know digs up a bone <laughs> which oh, obviously i mean i know you love to point out the tom hanks uh screaming and freakouts, <laughs> and he has a level one oh, yeah. flip out right here when he's crushing the beer cans <laughs> and talking about i just want to lay here get to sleep <laughs> <laughs> right his voice yeah. is like you know doing that tom hanks 
kind of warble and everything as he gets so frantic. And he, so he, does, he goes from the warble to the flat-out scream when he's talking yeah. about well, when they catch the note. And he's, like, talking about, they saw you, but they're going to say it's me. And he's screaming at him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I love a good Tom Hanks 80s yell. I mean, he just – he does it so well, um, you know. And obviously his frustration is that they, they keep kind of prodding and poking at it. Um, and then obviously once the dog digs up the bone, then that just kind of fuels things even further for Art, um, where he's kind of telling him it's a human bone and, it, you know, it didn't come from a chicken and all this kind of stuff. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, as as like as Ray tries to like go inside, Carol's coming out and he basically like runs straight into a door. Um, <laughs> and at this point, this is where Carol rather sensibly suggests, if you want to know about the Clopex, why don't you just go around and say, you know, knock here's on the door. some cookies yeah. or whatever. Yeah, just right. knock on the door and kind of say to them, hello. Like be neighborly, we... right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I I, find it funny that, you know, the again, I mean, this is obviously something that's quite common within, you know, 80s comedies in terms of the differences between men and women. Uh, men, of course, uh, being from Mars and women, of course, being from Venus. Um, <laughs> and being Venusians as they are, they're just like, let's just knock on their door and say, hello, we're your neighbors. <laughs> like, instead of trying to like dig under their house or kind of, you know, knock and run or whatever, or, you know, like just, just go around, knock on the door and say, we're your neighbors. And then just kind of talk to them as people. Um, and obviously this is where they decide that art is not coming along on this particular venture because <laughs> he is not invited. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, also, you know, because he like his because his wife is away, he's just like essentially by himself. So it makes more sense uh, that the Rumsfields and the Petersons go as, you know, two couples, mm. um, you know. And I what I did love about this is obviously, you know, the the the, the Klopex obviously um, let him in. Uh, you know, Ruben and Hans. And, you know, they talk about the Doctor. And this is where Hans offers some sardines. And he says <laughs> sardines in such a funny way. And the way he, like, offers them to everybody. <laughs> and nobody takes them. And then Ray, like, takes one. And Tom Hanks spends, like, a minute just kind of, like, chewing on a sardine. <laughs> slowly. Uh, is it sardines and, and pretzels, I believe? Pretzels, pretzels yeah. Right, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I just kind of, I just love the. I mean, there's a lot of like sound design on those sardines where you know I was like, that does not sound pleasant. <laughs> but I just love, you it's know, a Tom's kind of face. Very slow chew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And why yeah, did as... he take the sardines? Because his wife made him do it. She gave him the eyes of like, come on, <laughs> you do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I just, I like this is this is like a great scene for like Wendy Charl and Carrie Fisher as they as they basically kind of take control. Um, but obviously, you know, Ruben and Hans are still weird, but they're just, you know, but it's like, that's no reason to kind of treat them like they're Satanists or whatever. Like, you know, uh, they're just slightly different. And I, I think you this know. is, you're starting to get to the point of the film now where like up till now, a lot of evidence has been building up against the Klopax, like all yeah. the Walter stuff, the, the trash. This is kind of the first time when you start to wonder like, uh Oh, I think our protagonist might be wrong. <laughs> I think they're just idiots. <laughs> Yeah, um, and of course they kind of like the peak of this is when um, you know uh, Doctor Werner Klopek comes up and he goes to shake Ray's hand and his hand is red and obviously we're meant to assume it's blood, uh, but it turns out it's paint. Um, played by Henry Gibson, who I I can't trying to recall where I've seen him because I've seen him in a few things. Oh, he's um, all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I mean, he died in in two thousand nine. Um, but another, I mean, another he's in, inner space guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's I mean, he's also in Gremlins too. But I think do you know what do you know what I'm thinking of? Uh, I'm thinking of Magnolia uh, when he appears right. in Magnolia. Yeah. Uh, which is it's it's only like a brief thing, but it's you know it's a really good um, you know it's just a really good kind of cameo from him. Um, and <laughs> he's also in Wedding Crashes. Wait, who is he in Magnolia? <laughs> he's at the bar. Okay, uh, cool. he, With William he plays H. a guy Macy. that's called Thurston Howell. Yeah, yep. yeah. William H Macy is like you know kind of getting very upset and stuff, and and you know he's there's kind of just an interaction between the two of them where he's kind They're, of just yeah. missing. They're um, both after the same hot young bartender. The bartender. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and really really old. He was on laughing. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but he yeah, but uh, you know. He he's been in a ton of stuff, and obviously he has the right level because, like, um, uh, you know, Ruben and Hans obviously seem a little bit like the hills have eyes, whereas you know he seems a lot. You know, he's he's just like a more, more normal person. Yeah, but he's, he's still. Like, I mean, he's well spoken. He's an artist. He's yeah, a... <laughs> yeah. And so and so, you know, but Henry Gibson still ha- is able to kind of project a certain kind of air where it's like, you know, maybe there's something going on, but maybe there's not. Um, I will say everyone course, who's like a Klopek, they all the actors are doing really good work with their eyes. They're like there's like yeah, just yeah. like a really nice creepy touch to it. Yeah, oh, they all they a... all look fantastically creepy. And that's what's so funny about this scene is is how how terrible uh Mark uh is as as he speaks to them, like referring to uh hans as pinocchio and you know <laughs> yep. i don't know when he's talking to ruben and that whole thing about like, that's about a nine on the tension scale there rube is like he's just a, is that a slavic name <laughs> yeah <Slavic. laughs> yeah uh, call? he calls him calls him air klopek <laughs> air klopek right yes once he yeah it, i thought that was very funny because like uh you know like mark is kind of fascistic and he's like he's getting uh up in these germans face over like are these guys Nazis almost? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, I kind of, you know, obviously Ray is still suspicious. So he try he like tries to kind of find the toilet and then he's immediately like run over by a gigantic, I think it's a boxer, isn't it? The, uh, the dog that kind of comes out. Um, who you know is like the size of a horse, which is I and think what uh, I'm gonna mark response. Yeah, I'm gonna blank on the dog's name, but I know he's named after a serial killer. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, at some point, I might have to check IMDb and see what what who is what he's credited as. But uh, yeah, he's he I mean he is like a gigantic dog, um, and obviously this you know causes some suspicion from Mark. But you know, it's just like it's just a big dog, you know, <laughs> you know. Yep. And uh, and Werner is like, you know, sometimes he just overwhelms me. Obviously, Henry Gibson isn't a, isn't a tall fellow. I think he's roughly the same height as the dog. So um, you know, it's kind of understandable. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I like how Joe Dante still keeps the kind of like the tension. Um, and obviously, like you say, you know, uh, Mark is kind of asking questions about Walter and how he might disappeared. Um, and, you know, the dog kind of puts an end to that scene, um, you know, and Art is somewhere at the back, like trying to break in. And obviously the dog kind of finds him <laughs> and kind of um, and they, they, they decide to kind of leave because at, at that point, the wives are kind of like, you know, this you know, we've kind of made a spectacle of ourselves and we kind of need to get out of here. Um, you know, and they and have, there's a fat neighbor. 
at the back door. So. <laughs> yeah. A fat uh, and, and, and this is, uh, like, at this point, like, we get this really weird scene where Ray, he, he, he you know, he kind of convinces Carol that he's, he's kind of over all this now, and he takes them into the den, and then, um, is it is it Mark who says something about his balls, and then he like reaches into his shorts? Yeah, um, and, like, Whoa. and he's like, I was, he's like, I was only <laughs> <It's> joking. <Yeah. laughs> um, and of course, this is where he reveals that you know the wig that they had put back into Walter's house was now in the Clopex because he like you know stole it quickly while nobody was looking. Mm. Um, and this is where I mean, I guess this is kind of where we get to the like the the kind of the the third act. Where they kind of decide that they're gonna kind of break in and take a look once they see that the Clopex have left, um, and you know, uh, like Ray kind of convinces his family that he's gonna go golfing with the guys, and they're they're not they're not bothered about the Clopex anymore, um, and so you know Carrie Fisher and their son uh, kind of leave to go out of town while they kind of come up with a, a plan, uh, which involves Art cutting the power. And Mark having, like, this gigantic, like, walkie-talkie that's got, like, the world's longest aerial that just keeps going up and up and up when he pulls it out. And they have, like, two of those, and they're just, like... That's that's the plan, is they're going to kind of break in while uh, Mark is on the roof kind of um, looking out. Uh, and I believe he calls himself Eagle Eye. Is that the correct code name that he gives himself? I think so. Uh, while he's up there with his rifle... <laughs> which has got like this gigantic like infrared scope stuck on it, <laughs> and it's just like um, way too many yeah. toys. He's definitely compensating for something. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, what's funny is I, you know, I don't think Bonnie kind of. I don't know where Bonnie is in this. She seems to have kind of like vanished a little bit. I don't know if she's gone somewhere for the day or. Um, but I, normally she kind of tempers Mark a little bit and keeps him a bit sane. So uh, obviously he's just on the roof, and this is where. Uh, Ricky decides to invite some friends over so they can watch the show. Um, and I, I just kind of, I just love how, I mean, he'd done this previously in a, in the scene where there was like the, the lightning bolt thing where he'd like invited his girlfriend over and she was like, she wanted to like, you know, watch some TV or go to the cinema or something. And he was like, no, no, this is better. And obviously, so he's used to just kind of watching the neighborhood and seeing the, the spectacle and obviously he understands that basically this has escalated to the point where, um, you know, Ray and Art are going to break into the Clopex house and see what they can find. Um, uh, and I I mean, we obviously get, uh, you know, a gag here which sets something up later on, which where Art goes to cut the power and he's climbing up the pole. And, you know, he's like, I, you know, he, know, he knows how to handle it. You know, electricity is our friend. <laughs> and... He obviously, I don't know what he does, but he gets the wrong wire and basically like electrocutes himself and falls from this and kind of just lands. Um, and he's kind of like, they kind of pick him up and he's like a little bit kind of like jittery, um, you know. But I, I, it's really weird because I, I seem to remember in the 80s, a lot of gags where people got electrocuted and, you know, and kind of survived. This one reminds me a lot of the kid getting electrocuted on the line in Jurassic Park when he's uh, <laughs> like right as they're turning the power on and he's trying to get off. And the, the, it's like the movement, the fall, and everything seems very similar. So it, I feel like it was definitely a an Amblin Entertainment trope, <laughs> trademarks. <perhaps>. Yep. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Although this isn't Amblin, this is uh, this is Imagine. This is the first Imagine film uh, produced by yeah, right, right. Ron Howard and Brian Grazer for Universal. So 
Uh, but yeah, it does. I think mostly because Joe Dante has worked with Steven Spielberg and stuff, so it does have that Amblin feel to it. Um, but yeah, so I mean, this is obviously a terrible plan, like breaking into your neighbor's house, cutting the power, um, you know, having someone on the roof with a rifle and, <laughs> and a walkie-talkie. Like, not like from the outside looking in, this looks like an ins- like these people have gone insane. Um, and without real justification, I mean, all, all they found in the in the house was like a wig and there's a big dog. You know, there's like it's it's just kind of insane how quickly this escalates. Um, well, and at this you'll find out point. later, uh, despite whatever happens, you know, th- what the conclusion is that the two pieces of evidence they're really using the attack at Walter's house and his wig are both not what they think they are. <laughs> yeah. So, like, no. <laughs> everything they're doing is based on false evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, you know, these days, uh, it's, I like, it seems a bit dicey, but, uh, you know, with everybody out of the house, uh, they, they climb over the fence. Um, and I, I mean, I like that Mark is, is like Red Rover, Red Rover, let Ray go over, <laughs> then Ray climbs over and they're not listening, they're not listening to him on the walkie talkie, but he seems to think that he's directing them. Uh, like you say, I think he's missing the war. Um, and you know, we find, like, first of all, they're going to start digging some holes in the back garden to find whatever was buried, you know, from the previous night. And then they're going to go down to the basement and they say and work their way up. But, the, you know, they never get out of the basement. The basement is where they kind of stay. Um, and once they get in there, they see that it's a giant furnace. And I do like how art is like, you know, do thermostats on, like, you know, heatings in housing normally go to 5,000 degrees <laughs> and uh so it's like yeah obviously not this is you know this is a furnace that they've installed and they think is they talk about how like you know the the old houses are you know hard to heat up and stuff and and they're like but this is clearly not for that like it's clearly too big um and it's got powered by like a ton of batteries which is obviously what caused the light show earlier in the Mm. film um as they turn it on again and the same thing kind of happens and then mark falls off the roof (laughs) and and i do i like the stunt it's a really good stunt like the way he kind of rolls down one roof and then kind of goes on to the next and then kind of bounces off and as he lands he like shoots his rifle and and, and, like shoots out a a window or a car uh it's a way it's a really well executed like stunt whoever did that stunt i'm guessing it wasn't bruce dern falling off that roof what i find funny about that scene is the teenagers applauding like it's a stunt show (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're totally into it. It's it's it is like being at the Universal stunt backlot <laughs> tour thing to see to see like this crazy uh, performance. It's pretty funny watching them. Yeah. And right watch before this. that, when the first time they turn on the the uh, downstairs the the boiler or whatever, I think that's right when the Klopaks are coming the first time, and they right. see it yeah. turned on. Yeah. And, uh, and that, I think that, that's what away, kind of yeah. prompts prompts uh, Mark to fall off the roof is he he he's looking for something and he well no he gets the uh, he's looking for something and Ricky goes yo Rumsfeld oh yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so yeah the, the like as the power is on and obviously we can see the lights in the basement that is when the Clopex like return but they then kind of silently back out uh, away yeah. um, and this is where Ray starts digging in the in the basement um, and. While that's going on, uh, we see another car pulls up, uh, which I had forgotten had happened, actually, t- t- to be honest with you. I thought, oh, the Clopax are coming back soon. But no, it is Walter. Um, bold Walter is returning uh, with his family, <laughs> and they're kind of helping him out of the car. Um, 
And this is the point at which uh, Mark tries to warn Ray, like, you know, that what, like, obviously they all realize that, you know, the, the pretext that they had for breaking into this house is now completely wrong. And basically all they're doing now is trespassing on someone's home. <laughs> so uh, they try to warn um, Ray that the the term, well, I, th- I, I think the, this is just, just after that, the Klopeks return as well, don't they? Just like shortly after roughly the same time. Um, and they've got the police in tow. Um, and at that moment, this is where Ray hits the gas line. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> he's accidentally buried the walkie-talkie, so he can't hear the warning. Um, and Ray kind of, like, gets out of the house pretty quick. And I like that... Um, Art. Art gets out of the house pretty quick. Art, yeah. sorry, yes. No, yes. Um, and I like I like that, basically, um, Mark is like... <laughs> he's, he's like... Um, he says to Ricky, he says, you know, stop them. And so Ricky kind of stands in front of the Clopex car and they just drive around it. And it's well, like his, his excuses are so bad, too. I mean, he's he's like trying, but he's just. Yeah. Terrible at it. Uh, it's funny as well, because someone suggests that they're going to go and get an order from McDonald's. Um, but he says, no, no, don't do that. I've got the pizza guy coming. <laughs> so, and they all start high fiving and then they hang around. Um for what is an admittedly, uh, you know, kind of uh, like interesting show because the house explodes, basically. And, you know, uh, obviously they built this practically and blew it up, uh, which is where we get it from a few angles, because obviously this costs money. And um, like Ray is still in there. That's the kind of funny thing is like, you know, um, in this type of film, normally you'd expect Ray to kind of get out of there just in time, but he doesn't. And then as just before the house starts to kind of fall apart, he kind of just walks out stunned, kind of half, I don't know, like he's he's in a bad way, like half his face, like he can't see out of one eye, like he looks like he's basically been in an explosion, which is obviously what's happened. And as he walks away, like the house starts to fall apart behind him and kind of crumble. Um, and Tom Hanks does some wonderful, like as he's going down the steps, he kind of stumbles a little bit, like as if he's a bit blind. Uh, and it's just a great, like, I don't know, just some just nice physical stuff from... Uh, uh, from Tom, it's like he slips down the stairs, which is what I love yeah. so much. It's like he, his shoes just kind of like it's just it's great. Yeah, it's like he kind of misses the steps, like but he's he's not losing his balance, and it's just so it's so well done. It's like uh, again, this is this is where you get Tom Hanks, you know, for the yelling and for the, the kind of the physicality. Um, and so yeah, you know, obviously the Klopaks are not happy that the house has been exploded. Um, they've brought the police with them. That's obviously why they kind of drove away and then come back, which makes them look like sensible people because they think someone is trespassing in the house, so they go and get the police. Whereas on the other side, Ray has just blown up their house, so he doesn't look like the good guy at all. (laughs) So, um, And I like that this leads to Ray uh, kind of... Like, Carol returns at roughly the like just after that as well, and, you know, the cops start listing off the crimes that they've done, you know, like the trespass and all that kind of stuff, breaking an entry. And this is where Ray obviously gets mad at Art. Uh, rightfully so, because obviously Art is the one who's kind of pushed all this. And he just, and again, we get like a classic Hank's breakdown as he starts yelling and screaming at Art, <laughs> and trying to attack him. And then eventually he basically just gets the gurney and just loads himself into the ambulance so that he can kind of just take some rest and kind of get away from the whole situation. I mean, the house explosion itself is amazing. It's, it's, you know, this would be a CGI explosion that sucks nowadays. Um, <laughs> and you said this is the reason why you get Tom Hanks. Another reason why you get him is he's able to make the turn from all the craziness we've seen to when he's yelling at Art, he's really pissed. Like, he's just like, we have now done all this, blown up this guy's house. Everything we did was wrong. 
And if you're an audience member watching this for the first time, that's what you think has happened. Like, that these morons went in there and blew up these people's <laughs> houses, and they didn't do anything wrong except for be a little weird. Yeah, that's what he says, doesn't he? He says they're a little different to us, but who cares? You know, like, that's no reason to, like, break into their <laughs> house and, and, just, and destroy it, basically. Yeah. And I like that he kind of he kind of admits that they've they've done wrong and he's like you know we like we we like we we've just kind of like you know kind of attacked these people and kept stalking them and kind of trying to break into their house and just kind of you know for the last week they've just basically every day been complete pains to the their neighbors with no real reason and then they've blown up their house um, and so he he kind of like to the police, he's like, yeah, sure, you know, like take me to prison. <laughs> like he's he's just kind of admitting that he's just complicit in all this. Um, and this is when we then get, the, you know, we got like ten minutes left in the film, and this is where we get the twist, um, which is the doctor kind of uh, gets into the ambulance, and obviously, you know, um, at this point Ray is kind of apologetic, and he's like, you know, sorry for all the stuff we did, and he's like, you were in the basement, so you found, you know, the furnace. And you also found, like, the skulls. And he didn't find the skulls because, obviously, he, you know, he dug down into the gas line. Um, but I, I, I like how I kind of... a man's um, furnace is a man's furnace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I just like how immediately, like, obviously, Werner reveals himself as the bad guy that they thought he was. But he didn't kill, you know, Walter. He's just killed a lot of other people who aren't Walter, <laughs> including the previous owners of the house. And this is something that was brought up earlier in the film where they said, we didn't see any moving trucks. Like, they didn't see the previous family move out. You know, suddenly, a month ago, these people are living in this house. Uh, and obviously, this is where Werner admits that they killed the previous occupants and they just took the house, basically. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I, what's funny is, you know, the ambulance kind of... Um, doesn't it like is it crashing to the pizza guy the pizza guy like shows up right because yeah, hans they, they start yeah, they it. start fighting in the back and he grabs a hold yeah. of hans and they lose control they go off the road they hit the pizza truck the pizzas fly out of the side <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they end up crashing into art's house i think yep. isn't it yes right yeah um and then you know this is where when they when they get out of the ambulance obviously you know, Werner then starts acting innocent again and Ray, like, starts screaming citizen's arrest and, like, laying on top of him <laughs> and screaming. And then, you know, he's like, you know, there's no evidence of anything and he's like, you know, this guy's, you know, you know crazy, just, you know, attacking me. Um, and then that we find out, obviously, that the trunk of their car has been knocked open and there's a ton of bones in there. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it turns out that the crazy people who kept trying to break into this person's house... Uh, were proven like the, yes indeed this person has killed tons of people and there are all of the bones and so obviously the police now have to arrest them um and yeah i and and at that point ray has kind of had enough and him and carol are like you know let's go to the uh the lake house and let's get out of here and you know they say art's wife has returned which obviously you know alarms art <laughs> Um, and more, more, more than the fact that his house is on fire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's the return. It's the return of his wife. That's the that's the thing that's gonna be more upsetting than the fact that his house is currently on fire. Um, and that is where the film finishes. Um, and you well, know, don't forget the uh, the Corey Feldman line at the end where he breaks the fourth wall. Oh and yeah, right down yeah. the barrel of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just before the just before credits roll, we do get uh, yeah the the kind of. Uh, Corey Feldman breaks the fourth wall and says that he loves his street. Um, 
and you know looking directly at the at the audience and then obviously we zoom back out um to kind of the, you know to see the world again um thus you know capping the end of the film um and yeah and then we get the end credits with people getting single cards and you know uh, <laughs> clips from earlier in the film um and that's where the film ends so you know the moral of the story be super suspicious of any foreigners who move into your street um <laughs> and break into their home and blow it up i'm not i'm not sure that that's the right message to be and said. by foreigner it really means anyone who wasn't living here previously <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah you're suspicious because um, you're here now <laughs> yeah i mean especially if you don't see the old family move out that's the that's the moral of the story but yeah i don't know i mean i i kind of uh, this ending is so kind of chaotic in terms of things crashing into things and things exploding and mm. you know it really feels like joe dante like kind of kept everything for like this big like you know most of the film is just kind of people talking and you know <laughs> in and out of houses and whatever you know this cost 18 million um, and I think probably three or four of that was on blowing up some houses um, and crashing some some ambulances and some cars and stuff. Mm. And there was a neat thing when the house explodes, like the uh, the the lightning rod kind of goes through the bonnet of the police car and like pins it in place. Uh, and I like how Tom Hanks like he says to the detective, "Sorry about your car," which I just thought was like a funny little aside. Um, but yeah, so well, I mean, it's a good thing for them it ended that way. Otherwise, you would have had a real problem because <laughs> they did a lot of bad things in that. Yeah, yeah. There's an alternate ending to this, but it's basically just they add a bunch of other stuff in there. Like, I don't think the fight in the ambulance happens. It's, I mean, it's still the same ending. It's just a different, mm. differently shot ending. Like you see, you get a little bit more with like Uncle Reuben and stuff. But it, I remember watching it and not thinking it was all that great. And it was really long. Yeah, I was going to say, I hadn't seen any, like, uh, the, the other versions. So I didn't know if you had Jeff, obviously, within your, you know, doing minute by minute. Yeah, there's definitely stuff cut out. If you watch the trailer, they're, like, half the trailer is stuff that's cut out of the movie. Like, there was some stuff about, like, there's some other dream stuff. There's some mm. stuff with him and Carrie Fisher that's in there. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like her role is kind of pared down a bit, doesn't it? Like, it feels like there's, there's probably more of her that that should have been in the film but I, um, what the problem was i don't think it was anything good <laughs> i think it was just like yeah some more of them lounging around the house not moving the plot forward you know i think it's i, I think it's just great i i love i mean it's it's a it's a twist and i guess you know it hit me at the right age i know for some people it's a twist like taking it too far but for me i, I feel like it sets up i mean it has a message that actually makes sense like you know don't be this suspicious of people just because of these little things that you you see as fact that may not actually lead to anything you you may be making a mountain out of a molehill but it just feels like such a great little joe dante twist to have at the end here where oh no they really are uh <laughs> murderers and here are the bodies in their trunk like I, the way that it plays out for me i i don't know i just i feel that it fits into that real dark comedy uh type of storytelling that uh that i has always worked for me so i love it uh <laughs> I think, I, I think for me personally, I don't like the twist, uh, mostly because like they spend the majority of the film setting up like, uh, you know, they're doing all these, uh, uh, sort of illegal things, breaking into the home and everything, and um, you know, it's supposed to set up like, hey, the people in the suburbs, where the suspicious weirdos who, uh, uh, see um, danger in uh, just someone being different or, or whatever 
And I think for me, at least the twist <laughs> ruins that message. Uh, I can, <laughs> I can sort of appreciate it as like, yes, like uh, subverting it by, um, by having the twist and uh, everything that um, made Tom Hanks suspicious, like wasn't the evidence that sort of like uh, would implicate them as serial killers, I guess. But uh, yeah, I think it sort of uh, doesn't really work for me at all. Well then, let's uh, let's go to our ratings of this particular episode. Uh, of course, uh, the ratings on this are T Hanks or <laughs> no T Hanks. Um, so we'll start with on two because obviously, you know, controversial. Not appreciating the twist ending <laughs> at the end there. So I don't know if you're going to go T Hanks or no T Hanks on this. To be honest, uh, I you know having uh, partaken in this podcast and like thinking about the film. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna go for a T. Hanks. Like most, even though I I think the twist doesn't work for me personally, I I think the performances are really strong. There's like a lot of really good Tom Hanks yelling, and um, again, like the, some of the images just from this film have like stayed with me. Like even though I've only seen it twice, like just the picture of like Courtney Gaines like sneaking away from the ambulance. Uh, that, oh yeah, that stayed in my mind. Like we're hearing Bruce Dern say "Hey Pinocchio," that I, I could even remember that from seeing it as a kid. So I'm like, yeah, you, I think you should see this film, and uh, it's like an interesting film in Joe Dante's filmography as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel like Jeff, you wouldn't have done a minute by minute podcast about this um, if you were not T Hanks. But obviously, if you want to say no T Hanks, then that's going to be a shock to some people. I feel yeah, it's absolutely T Hanks. <laughs> Only a crazy person like Robert Black would do a movie they didn't like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The first minute-by-minute minute podcast that I did was a talking cast, which was about the film A Talking Cat. So. Oh, I definitely mentioned that during the Burbs Minute because yeah. Burbs Minute was only like 15 episodes or 15 movies in. So at that time, I was still living in this dream world where I was going to – I'm going to listen to all these movies by minute someday. Guess what? I didn't. Because <laughs> they just keep coming. Yeah. And Andy, I feel like it's a foregone conclusion, but we should still get your verdict. It, yeah. I mean it's definitely a T. Hanks for me. Uh, just talking about it again makes me want to go put it on right now and just huh. watch it all over again because I just I, – I love this film so much. Yeah. I mean it's a T. Hanks for me. It is like – you know, even – what I think is funny is the fact that, you know, like it didn't really make – a huge amount of money and it did kind of end up as with a lot of joe dante stuff becoming a bit of a cult hit um you know and and you know what's funny is i think this the kind of the middling kind of failure of this film is kind of what pushed uh joe dante towards doing gremlins too because i feel like he needed a hit and it was like well you know the burbs hasn't made any money so I guess now's the time to take up the offer from Warner Brothers, you know, that's been standing for the last five or six years to do a sequel to Gremlins. Uh, and obviously, you know, he got full creative control on that one and, and did whatever the hell he liked and, you know, made one of the weirdest films that a studio has ever kind of put out with that kind of budget, uh, which was a huge flop, did not make any money. <laughs> and, yeah. and obviously, uh, you know, so, but yeah, I mean, I saw it at the cinema, but I don't think very many other people did. Um, you know, it, it's like one of those kind of films that you just did not make any money. So yeah, I, what I like about Joe Dante is just like, he has a very specific sensibility. And I think this film is like a, a perfect example of that. Like, you know, obviously Dana Olsen has come to him with this idea of like, what if the suburbs were weird? And, you know, he's kind of taken it in this very odd direction throughout this film. And, you know, like when you think of the actions of the protagonist, they are basically just kind of 
harassing a family and breaking and entering into their house. And yet he kind of, you know, I think with obviously the charm of Tom Hanks and, you know, kind of his direction. And again, the score, I think, kind of sells it to you. And you kind of end up on their side anyway. You know, you kind of end up end of kind of, uh, you know, rooting for them right up to the moment where basically you think, oh, maybe they're just doing this over nothing. Um, you know, and the, the whole like the wig thing is explained by it being posted through the letterbox. And, you know, and you think they're innocent and then the twist comes and it's like, oh, no, no, they were right. Uh, but, you know, I think with anybody else but Tom Hanks in that role, you know, he, uh, you know, something which obviously, you know, didn't work in like Bonfires of the Vanities is like he has the charm to kind of make you like this person who's basically doing crazy things <laughs> and kind of, you know, in un- un- under other circumstances, he could be quite unlikable. Like he's a guy who's harassing his neighbor. This is, you know, in I think in 2021, you know, this would be a completely different film. <laughs> and, you know, somebody in this film, well, let's say at least two of these characters would definitely be the villains. Um, but yeah, they just they managed to pull it off. And you know, Joe Dante, you know, in recent years he hasn't done that much. But um, and I think the last film I saw of his in the cinema was probably Small Soldiers. Um, but you know, he does have. He's one of those directors who kind of came up around the time of Spielberg, who has like a very specific sensibility. And you know, it's always worth seeing his films. Um, you know, just to kind of see how he did it. Um, but yeah, so I don't know that this film has a huge amount to say about the suburbs, other than if you're in a cul-de-sac, um, you know, which Dick Miller hates, uh, you know, there's only one way in and out. So, <laughs> so you kind of have to make your own entertainment. And, uh, you know, obviously Corey Feldman felt that just watching, you know, the neighbours is, is that entertainment. Um, so let's go to plugs. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Jeff. Is there anything that you wish to plug before we go? Oh, if an hour and a half of the Burbs wasn't enough for you, you can go over to the Burbs Minute where we go over it in 99 episodes covering the Burbs. And if you still aren't tired of me by then, I do the Jay and Silent Bob Minute where we cover the Kevin Smith movies. We've done Clerks, Mall Rats, Chasing Amy. And at some point, we're going to put Dogma out when I stop being lazy and actually do it. I mean, have you got a copy of Dogma? Because that film is currently out of print. Oh, I do. Oh, Yeah. I already got it. I already got it split up into minute slices. We've already started. We're already like <laughs> oh, there you go. 20 minutes into it. But you know, we got like a little bit into it. And we were like, ah, we're busy this week and this week and this week. And, you know, <laughs> the problem is once you miss a week or two, it's a lot easier to be like, ah, we'll get around to it. <laughs> Have you got the I, – I mean this is just my own personal curiosity. Have you got the two-disc version uh, that was released? I think I do with, with all the crazy like um, – Yeah, with all the, the extra... ads and stuff in it and all the – with yeah. the lady that's yelling at you. Yeah. telling you you shouldn't have bought this this dvd and you're gonna to go to hell wow yeah. that is a that's a great addition i am i like i imported that because i was like i can't remember how much it cost me it cost me way too much but you know it was like that's the only version that i'm gonna want of this film um and i don't currently have a dvd player that can play that so, oh. <laughs> so perfect i I own it, but I can't watch it. Um, and then, Andy, uh, is there anything that you wish to plug? Yeah, you can uh, hear more about uh, the all the different movies that we've talked about over at uh, thenextreel.com. You can you can hear all those shows. Uh, we've talked about tons of Tom Hanks movies, and we have our Marvel Movie Minute. So, yeah, you can just head to thenextreel.com. You'll find everything there. Well, fellas, this film was very much about... Ray and Art, but the next one is going to be about Turner. Mm-hmm.